Once there was a time when all the elements of earth, sea, and sky lived on the land together in many, many villages. Many years ago, back in the old country, there lived a holy, sweet couple who loved each other so very much. A long time ago, in a village, somewhere in Tamil Nadu, there lived a monkey. There was once a man, tall and handsome, who met a, a woman, beautiful and elegant, and they fell in love with each other. Once upon a time, and welcome to the Story Story Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Ann Harding, and I have some stories for you. This is a podcast to hear traditional stories told by some of the best storytellers in the world. It will take you to long ago and far away and will bring you back safely. If you live in a place with beautiful hiking, it's pretty well expected of you to hike. One recent afternoon, I decided to head into the mountains and picked a trail I'd never gone on before. As I walked along, I noticed there weren't too many people on the trail, but that didn't bother me because that meant I could practice my singing. The hills are alive. I'm Henry VIII The mountains I was hiking in were so high in the sky that the clouds drifting by ran into them, and the forest became shrouded in a mist, white and gray. It floated and curled through the trees, getting thicker and thicker until it was so thick I was pushing it out of my way like a wall of eggshell white cotton candy trying to stay on the trail. It was tough work and bits of cloud were stuck all over my hands and shoes. It was then I began to wonder, what does cloud taste like? I took out my hiking knife and cut off a small piece of cloud the size of a plum. I put it in my mouth and felt a little snap of miniature lightning. It didn't hurt, more like having crackling candy in my mouth. The cloud itself wasn't too sweet, but tasted more like a fresh bit of marshmallow. I cut off another few pieces, put some in my pockets, and continued to push my way through the clouds, trying to find the peak of the mountain. The first story I have for you also begins in the mountains, and all of the stories in this episode are tall tales and are a little more modern in their settings. Laura Deal is a Colorado storyteller and an author. This is her original story, The Diffin' Daffer Taffy Cafe. Once upon a time, in the mountains not too far from here, there was a wide valley just above a narrow canyon. And in that valley, cucumbers were the only crop that anyone could grow. So long before our story starts, Penelope Pilster, then a young woman, established a pickling operation she called the Pickle Emporium. Penelope's pickles sold far and wide, and a small town she named Pickle Gulch grew up around her business. It was a company town. Every family had at least one person who worked for Penelope's Pickle Emporium. Now our story starts many decades later when Penelope was a grandmother. It had been a hard year with a drought that settled in like an old cat on a soft bed, and that summer the cucumber plants began to wilt. If the drought continued, they wouldn't have enough cucumbers to pickle. And if they couldn't make pickles, Penelope wouldn't be able to pay the people who worked at her emporium. Everyone in Pickle Gulch was worried, even Polly Pilster, Penelope's granddaughter, who was ten. Polly was usually a happy person, but she could tell all the grown-ups were worried, especially Grandmother Penelope. Polly didn't like everyone being so glum. 
One day, Polly's mother said, Polly, you've got a second cousin coming for a visit, and she's ten, just like you. Her name is Muffy Diffendaffer, and her grandmother is Grandmother Penelope's sister. That cheered Polly right up. When are they coming? This afternoon, on the train. Grandmother Penelope is going to pick them up in her car at three. Can I go with her? No, there won't be room in the car, but you could ride your bike there. Polly couldn't wait. It would only take her ten minutes to ride her bike to the train station, but she got it out an hour early. She rode slowly past the park and the post office and the pickle emporium. The summer sun strengthened the smell of sour pickles, but Polly didn't hurry by. Still, she got to the station with a long time to wait on the bench. Grandmother Penelope got there early, too, and sat down beside Polly. After a few minutes, Grandmother said, No train, no rain. Her mouth was as sour as a pickle as she glowered at the only cloud, a puny, puffy, no-rain cloud. Polly didn't want to think about the drought, but after that she couldn't stop looking at the sky. Even the little cloud was disappearing. Soon the sun had the big blue sky all to itself. It made Polly thirsty. Finally the train rolled in and a whole family got out. Grandmother Penelope said, Hello, Duffy. The dad, Duffy, smiled a great big smile. He was a burly man with a bushy beard. And Penelope, this is my family, my wife Miffy, daughter Muffy, and the baby Patapoof. Well, Muffy and Polly were friends as soon as they laid eyes on each other. Polly rode her bike hard and kept up with Grandmother's car all the way to Grandmother's house as Muffy smiled and waved through the window. At the house, while they all sat around having lemonade and pickle snacks, Grandmother told Duffy how nice it was that he'd come to visit, and he said, We didn't come to visit. We came to stay. I'm going to open the Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe. Grandmother gasped. Taffy? But everyone in Pickle Gulch makes pickles. Duffy said, Not anymore. My granddaddy Diffendaffer made taffy, and so do I. The machines and ingredients came with us on the train. We're ready to open up shop. All we need is a space. Polly wished hard that Grandmother would find a space for the Diffendaffers in Pickle Gulch. Grandmother Penelope pursed her lips. You should know that the people of Pickle Gulch are particular. We like pickles, not sweet treats. I doubt you'll get much business, but if you want to stay, we'll find room. To Polly's delight, the Diffendaffers decided to stay and open their Taffy Cafe anyway. It didn't take long before the Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe was open for business. The taffy pulling machine stretched and folded the taffy, and the bins were full of different flavors. Unfortunately, Grandmother Penelope was right. The people of Pickle Gulch peered in the windows, but only Polly went in. The Diffendaffers didn't seem worried, though, and Polly loved helping at the Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe. She helped Muffy mix the taffy and wrap the taffy. She tasted every flavor. They made chocolate, vanilla, butterscotch, and toffee taffy. They made strawberry, blueberry, pecan, and peach. When those flavors didn't bring in the buyers, they tried new ones, 
gooseberry, juneberry, blackberry, raspberry, pomegranate, papaya, pineapple, and plum. Pretty soon the Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe was full of taffy, but the Diffendaffers hadn't sold one piece. One day, Polly and Muffy walked with Grandmother Penelope into the cucumber fields. With all the fun she'd been having, Polly had almost forgotten the drought. Grandmother Penelope cried, Look at my parched plants. The summer sun is scorching them. If we don't get clouds and rain, we'll lose the whole crop, and we won't be able to make any pickles this year. Polly puzzled on the problem. Muffy said, Let's get out of the heat and go talk at the Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe. So Penelope went with them and told the Diffendaffers about Pickle Gulch's plight. We've tried bringing water to the fields, but it's not enough. We have too little water and too much sun. The water just dries up. Everyone thought and thought. Then Polly whispered to Muffy, and Muffy whispered to Polly, and they began to smile. Grandmother Penelope, Polly said, we have an idea. First, we have to make a lot of taffy. Polly told Grandmother Penelope to ask the people of Pickle Gulch to meet them in the cucumber fields in one hour. Why? Penelope asked. We're going to save the cucumbers. Polly and the Diffendaffers mixed up all the ingredients they had in big bowls. They filled baskets and barrels and bowls with taffy. They hauled it all in a big truck to the parched fields of Pickle Gulch. All the townspeople were waiting. Polly and Muffy stood on the truck to announce their idea. With the help of everyone here, we're going to stretch this taffy into a giant tent. Then the cucumbers will have shade. And if you get hungry, you can taste the taffy. The people muttered, they murmured, they mumbled to themselves. A taffy tent? Preposterous! Penelope exclaimed. Just try it, Polly said. If we don't do something, the crop will die. You told us that yourself. So Grandmother Penelope agreed to try. The people pulled and stretched the taffy. They grabbed great gobs of it. Slowly the tent grew. One by one, the townspeople tried tasting the taffy. They smiled and licked their fingers. Finally, when they had stretched the taffy into a big tent, the people of Pickle Gulch cheered for Polly and Muffy and the wonderful Diffendaffer Taffy Cafe. That tent held until at last the rains came, and then the taffy dissolved into the ground. The pickles that year were the sweetest ones ever made in Pickle Gulch. And to celebrate, Polly and Muffy made a new flavor of taffy, pickle taffy, just for the people of Pickle Gulch. The fairy tale sponsor for this episode is Paul Bunyan Fitness Camp. Before there was CrossFit, there was Paul Fit. The legendary lumberjack for the American frontier is ready to share his fitness and nutritional secrets so you too can be strong enough to cut down half a forest in the swing of an axe. His logging camp is filled with men and women who came in thin and frail, and now all of them are over six feet tall and solid muscle. They can work from dawn till dusk and keep working till it's dawn again. Paul Bunyan program covers aerobics, calisthenics, weightlifting, and tree climbing. His nutritional program is quite the treat with porridge, pancakes, and bacon. And of course, fabulous dairy products from Lucy the Purple Cow. It's sure to put hair on your chest. And if you don't want hair there, Paul will teach you how to intimidate it to keep it from growing. 
Forget CrossFit, get Paul fit, and look amazing in plaid. It took me some time to get through the cloud, and at the end of the trail I had to use my knife to cut through the upper layer to get to the top of the mountain. But what a view! I could see the clouds stretched out all around me, and in the distance, the rolling mountains and forests beyond. As I looked at the view, I saw how big the cloud was, and I knew it would take hours to pass by. I didn't have hours. I needed to be down the mountain and home before dark, but how to get down? I thought about wrapping myself up in a thick layer of the cloud and rolling down the mountain, but ditched that idea when I thought about how tumbling over and over might make my stomach sick. I could cut out a mattress of cloud and take a nap, perhaps, but at this altitude I would definitely get sunburnt. Out of curiosity, I stepped on the edge of the cloud with my shoe. It held me. I slowly put my other foot on the cloud and bounced a little. Well, it held me just fine. The top of the cloud must be much tougher and thicker than the underside. I looked up and realized I was floating away from the top of the mountain. I scrambled to get back, but the wind was blowing rather steadily, and I couldn't quite reach solid ground again. Well, this was quite the pickle. Hmm. Well, I was going to keep walking, and if I started to sink, I would hope to encounter a tall tree and climb down to that. I started walking across the squishy top of the cloud. It was like walking on a moving sidewalk. Every step took me seven paces. I was bounding along in the air. And if I was going to fall, I might as well enjoy the view. This went on for about half an hour before the cloud took a slight turn up and then I was spilling over the edge of a mountain range, and the whole cloud was tilting underneath my feet. I started to slide, and I grasped around for something to hold on to, but it was like falling down a hill of sand. Faster and faster I slid, until I went right over the edge of the cloud, and as luck would have it, tumbled right into a meadow at the bottom of the mountain, near the start of the very trail I had been climbing. I sat up slowly, a bit dazed from it all, and the shadow of the cloud passed over me. It gave a low rumble of thunder, and I waved to it as I picked myself up and ran for the car before the rain started. The first drop started to fall as I got into my car and turned it on. I took a piece of cloud out of my pocket and began to chew on it as I drove home. It had been a good day for a hike. As I drove home, I thought about the next story you're going to hear. It'll take you into the Appalachian Mountains, and you'll be guided by West Virginian storyteller Adam Booth. This is his story, Moses of the Mountains. Well, around these parts, I've come to be known as Moses of the Mountains. It was about 10 years or so ago when some of my buddies from college and I decided to take the Great American Road Trip, load up an old van and drive around the country for as long as we could possibly stand it, see this great land that most of us had never seen since most of us had only ever been in West Virginia. And we did just that. We loaded up an old van and set out west, promising ourselves to stop and look at any of the small, unusual, or odd roadside attractions along the way. A few days into the trip, we had made it to the Great Rocky Mountains, and right after we had gotten there, we were heading down one of the highways and saw a sign that said, This way to Buffalo Bill's grave. So I turned the van up the hill, up the mountain, and we went up and up and up, further and further up the mountain, on our way to see Buffalo Bill's grave, but along the way, got a flat tire. 
So I pulled our van off to the side of the road and went around to the back to get the necessary tools to fix the flat. And as I was digging around the back of the van, I heard a voice come from behind me. Son, you'd be wiser to keep on moving. I turned around and there behind me was the biggest, burliest mountain man I had ever seen, which is saying a lot coming from West Virginia. And there on his left and his right were equally big and burly mountain people. The voice came out again, Son, I said you'd be wiser to keep on moving. I, I, I took a step backwards. The whole row of mountain people took a step forward. At this moment, all my buddies had taken off running as fast as they could, but I, I, I just couldn't. I took another step back, and those mountain folk took another step forward. I took one more step back and rammed right into the back of the van and fell to the ground. The voice came out again. Son, does that license plate say West Virginia? I said, yes, sir, it does. He said, West by God, Virginia? I said, yeah, that's the one. You know it? He said, know it? We are it. Everyone gather around. And all those mountain people gathered around me. He said, listen, folks, this feller here's Ken. I said, what are you talking about? He said, son, you are looking at the 12 lost tribes of West Virginia. Over here on my left, I've got six tribes whose people come from the counties of Wayne, Wyoming, Lincoln, Logan, Mingo, and McDowell. They're known as the Bitumenite tribes. And over here on my right, I've got six tribes whose families are from the counties of Cabell, Putnam, Kanawha, Wood, Monongalia, Jefferson. They're known as the Industrialite tribes. I said, well, this is Great, but but what are you talking about? He kind of chuckled a bit and said, Well, see, back in the days of our ancestors, our great-great-great-grandparents, the state capital of West Virginia changed hands quite a few times, and when our relatives went out to pay taxes, they were never quite sure where they were supposed to go to get to the capital, and a number of them got lost on the way. And we've been stranded out here in these mountains ever since trying to find our way home. But seeing that you're from West Virginia, you think that you could take us home? I said, well, I do know how to get back to the homeland, but you're not all going to fit in my van. We're going to have to go by foot. The leader of this group looked to his left, and they nodded at him. He looked to his right, they nodded, and he looked at me, stuck out his hand and said, you got yourself a deal. The next morning, we woke up, gathered all the necessary belongings that they had, and set on out of those mountains by foot. I was leading those 12 tribes, and we went day after day out of those mountains until we just got to a nice, vast wilderness. There wasn't anything. This was the beginning of the Great Plains. And about this time, we noticed that we were running out of our necessary food supply. Now, it was fortunate for us that we happened upon a great farm that was owned and run by a farmer named John Farrell. And farmer John Farrell was kind enough to let us squat on the outsides of his property and work in his fields in exchange for some of the returns that came in from all of his crops. 
seemed like a good deal, so we stayed there. And we worked day in and day out. But by the end of the first week, we realized that we were getting the low end of the bargain. He wasn't giving us anything. So I knew I had to do something about it. The end of that first week, I woke up early, right as the sun was coming up. As I was standing up, oh, my back hurt from all that work I'd been doing in the field. So I picked up a stick and I used it as I walked out of our camp, headed across those fields and went to the edge of the land where Farmer Farrell's farmhouse was. Every morning he would come out of those big doors on the front and look across at his fields. And I got there just as those doors were opening. As he stepped out, I took that walking stick, I thrust it into the ground, I straightened up my back, and I called out to him, Feral! Feral! Let my people go! He looked at me, spat in the ground, and said, Get back to work, you hillbilly. Oh, now if there's one thing I can't stand, it's being called a hillbilly by someone who ain't from the West Virginia mountains. So I went back to where the 12 tribes were. I gathered them all around. I said, listen, folks, have you been keeping up with the ways of West Virginia ever since you've been lost? They said, sure have. I said, do you have a supply of ramps anywhere? They said, sure do. I said, great. Eat up all those ramps. Fix them with potatoes, a little bit of ham, or just eat them raw. But whatever you do, eat as many of them as you can, and eat them as fast as you can. And the twelve tribes set to eating those ramps, and before long their skin began to stink so bad. And not long after that, a great cloud of that stink, that stench, it just rose right up into the air. And that cloud blew forth over Farmer Farrell's land. And as that great stinky cloud went forth, it was so pungent that it killed the first grown crop of his season. And it also took out the firstborn of all of his livestock. And when Pharaoh came out and saw the plague that had come across his land, he came to us and said, go, go, get away from my land, but take whatever it is you need. Whatever you do, get away from here as soon as you can. And so we took what food we needed to get us around the rest of our trip and set on the rest of our journey. As the days passed, we would occasionally stop in little towns across the Great Plains. We began to notice that before long, we'd stop in a town, and it was almost as if the townspeople knew who we were, kind of expected us coming. Then one day we stopped at a town, and one of the people there was particularly helpful and said, you all best watch out. See, apparently, Farmer Farrell had reported our activities to the authorities, and those authorities were on the hunt for us. As we continued our journey, we were coming within sight of the great Mississippi River one day when one of the members of the 12 tribes turned around and saw there behind us stretching across the horizon from one side to the other an entire fleet of police cars. They were coming after us at top speed, kicking up a great cloud of dust. So we took off running in the other direction, but there was the Mississippi River. And there was no bridge across. What were we going to do? I thought fast and then came up with an idea. I called out, quick, take up hands eight. The 12 tribes formed great square dancing squares. Some of the members pulled out fiddles and banjos and began playing old time music. And I began to call, well, grab your partner, swing around, hold her tight and don't slow down. And the 12 tribes began a great square dance. They danced around and around as that music played. And as they spun around and around, I began to call faster and faster. 
As they were dancing around and around, out of the center of those squares came great funnel clouds. They were twisting around, and they went over to the Mississippi River and parted the Mississippi right in half. I called, stop dancing, now's your chance. And we took off running across where the Mississippi had been parted. Right when we got to the other side, the funnel clouds dissipated. The water collapsed down below us, and the police were left on the other side. The adrenaline was so great that we kept running and running day after day until we reached the banks of the big sandy river at the far end of eastern Kentucky. The homeland was on the other side. And not just that, there was a great crowd of people on the other side. We crossed the bridge into Wayne County, and when we did, a sheriff stepped forward out of this great crowd of people, said, I need to speak to the person in charge of this group. I stepped forward, and he said, Would you care to explain the activities of this group of people? So I did. I told him how I had found the twelve lost tribes of West Virginia, how I led them out of the wilderness, how we were captives in Pharaoh's land and the plague that came across his land, and then how we parted the Mississippi in half, and how I'd finally brought my people home. He looked me in the eye and said, Is that so? Well, I guess you reckon yourself some kind of Moses of the mountains. I looked back at him and said, Well, I don't know so much about that, but I do know that I've brought my people home. Well, our story was on the television news, it was in the newspaper, and before long, people came to know about me. So now whenever people ask, Why are you called Moses of the mountains? Uh, I just sit back and tell them the tale. Thank you for listening to the Story Story Podcast. Show notes and more information about the storytellers you heard today can be found at storystorypodcast.com, episode 30. Show the love. Find Laura Deal and Adam Booth on Facebook and the internet. Tell them you heard them on the podcast and now want to hear them tell more stories. In fairy tales, the magic number is three, so I have three things for you to do. One, like and rate the show on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. Two, join the mailing list. You will get a link to the podcast delivered to your inbox, plus news and other storytelling-related goodness. Three, consider becoming a supporter. For as little as $4 a month, the cost of a fair trade chocolate bar, you help support the podcast and will get access to a story story short, which is just what it sounds like, an extra story for the patrons. The short for this episode is The Boy With Knowledge, which is a favorite story of mine by the storyteller Liz Weir. You can find out how to support the podcast and join the mailing list at storystorypodcast.com and a thank you as big as the boots of a giant to those who are donating. If you would like to stay connected, you can find me and the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Story Story Podcast or Rachel Ann Harding. Please come say hello, check out the ads for the fairy tale sponsors, and let me know the favorite story you have heard or the favorite stories of your childhood. Who knows? Maybe you'll hear them here soon. Next episode, there are women who as clever as they are talented, which is good because one of the stories contains a kidnapping by the fairies. I hope you'll join me again, and until then, live happily ever after. The wedding lasted for seven days. I was there. I would cross 
27 countries, wear out three pairs of boots, battle two giants, and the grandmother of all witches, Baba Yaga, before I was reunited with my frog princess. But that's a story for another time. The last thing he said before he died was a curse on anyone who would dare to go sing with the fairies. Just because a story is strange... Do not mistake, it can also be true.